Well, good morning. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 1 and verses 9 through 13 is where we'll be uh, looking here in just a few minutes. Uh, but can I start off by just celebrating with you for just a second? Uh, how many of you were on campus Wednesday night uh, for Awanas to help out with Awanas uh, or for the Bible study? Man, can we just praise the Lord? I mean, this is an exciting thing. Uh, we, <clears throat> excuse me. We fulfilled all of the workers uh, that were needed for Awanas. Uh, we had a great Bible study. Uh, youth was engaging. Everything really, really went r really, really smooth uh, for a kickoff night. And so we're excited that Wednesday nights are kicking back up. Uh, if you have not joined us yet, uh, come join us, whether you've got kids in Awanas, uh, whether you want to be a part of the Experiencing God Bible study, whatever it is, we would love to have you uh, on Wednesday nights, okay? Uh, so we are started, or we started last week, the sermon series on the book of Mark. How many of you were here last week? Good. So this is week two of 54. So uh, you've got 50 more. How many are ready for the next 50 weeks? Good. So that's awesome. I'm glad that you guys are uh, excited about that. Uh, this morning, I want to talk to you about this passage of scripture and this topic, make your father proud. Now, I don't know about you, and I don't know what the relationship that you've had with your father, whether it's a good relationship or whether it wasn't a good relationship. Maybe you've had this moment where your father looks at you and says, I am so proud of you. Man, for some, that's a tough thing to deal with because we desire this. We want this. We want to make sure that this is fulfilled. And so I think that this topic, this sermon will really key in on some areas on what it means to genuinely make our father proud. Uh, but before we get that, how many of you have embarrassed your parents? Okay. How many of you have taken it as a sport to embarrass your parents? Uh, I, I looked up a couple of uh, just cute things because if you have kids, you have been embarrassed at some point, some way. Amen. That's just a part of having kids. Uh, the author tells, and let me share two stories with you that I thought were really cute. Uh, the author was saying, when I was four, I was in the grocery store with my mustached dad. We were standing in line when I noticed the lady in front of us and cried out in my loud, squeaky voice, Daddy, that lady has a mustache just like you. My dad could have crawled under the, <laughs> can you imagine? The next one kind of cracks me up. The author says, when I was little, I had a baby doll that would wail pitifully unless you turned it over on its back. Did anybody have this baby doll? Uh, okay, good, nobody. Uh, this one, <laughs> I was playing with the car, or with it in the car before my mom got so sick of the noise and threw the doll in the trunk. When we stopped at a gas station, Somebody called the police on her because they thought that there was an actual baby in the trunk. I was mortified when we got pulled over only to find out that there was a baby doll in the trunk, not an actual baby. Can you imagine the conversation that you have with your kids after that? Listen, this is part of being a parent. Uh, I, I love that before we went anywhere, me and my brother, my brother was two years older than I am. Uh, or still is two years older than I am. I haven't caught up with him. Uh, but it's crazy. My dad, anytime, because he was a pastor and he wanted people to kind of perceive him a, a certain way, before we got out of the car, from junior high to high school to college, he would say these words, Jamie and Jeff, do not embarrass me. Now, have any of your parents ever said those words to you? Okay, now listen, 
What he didn't understand was that we took that as a personal challenge. <laughs> Our whole goal was to embarrass him in some way, just in, in just whether it's a small way or a little way, just so that we got back in the car, he would go, I told you not to embarrass me. That was kind of who we are. But you think about this. When you think about pleasing your father and honoring your father, man, this is a big goal for us. Proud parent moments. Man, I I love this understanding. I was reading an article of the proudest parent moments that could possibly exist. Uh, Do you remember when your kids used their manners for the first time? Like instead of saying, yeah, they said yes, ma'am, or no, ma'am, or yes, ma'am, or or, or, no, sir, or yes, sir. Man, it was one of those moments where you're like, finally, they got it. Maybe you've watched your child overcome a fear. Maybe it's a fear of getting into the pool or a fear of heights or whatever, fear of standing up in front of people. And you watch them overcome that fear. And as a parent, you sat there and you said, they finally overcame it. Maybe you've been proud by the fact that your kids have taken a stand on their beliefs and that everybody around them was not, but your child that you had invested in scripturally was taking a stand for their beliefs. I love the understanding, and I've been to these and many of these, uh, but when a child graduates, man, even if it's kindergarten, we are proud. Can you believe my kid made it through kindergarten? Yeah, I think they all do, don't they? (laughs) I'm not sure. But it's crazy to think whether it's a junior high graduation or a high school graduation or a college graduation, we are proud of the accomplishments of our children. And so I want to talk to you this morning about this passage of Scripture. Because in this passage of Scripture, God says these words about Jesus pleasing him and it really kind of rings true for us. And so in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, we begin with the baptism of Jesus. Now realize that Mark in this passage of scripture, in his literary writing, is a very straight to the point writer. He's not somebody that gives a lot of background, a lot of details, a lot of things that are taking place. He just goes straight to what really matters and he keys in on it so that we can grasp it quickly. And so we come to this point, which is the baptism of Jesus. Now, I won't spend a ton of time on this because if you were with us in our Trinity Sermon Series, you heard a lot of this previously. But as the baptism of Jesus, remember last week he started in this understanding that this is the beginning, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So we pick it up in verse 9, where he says, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan or in the Jordan River. And we understand that John the Baptist up to this point was baptizing people in the wilderness. He was the messenger. He was the one that would come to prepare the way for Jesus Christ. He was the one that made sure everybody knew that Jesus would be present. So Jesus goes to him to become baptized. And as you can kind of understand the scene that's taking place, John the Baptist takes him into the Jordan River and begins to baptize him. And when he came out of the water, now, as we know this and as we've kind of studied this, we understand that you are baptized, that you are put under the water, you are buried in the likeness of Christ's death, and then you're raised to walk in newness of life, right? This is the the imagery, the picture of what's taking place. In verse 10, and when he came up out of the water, immediately 
He saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Now imagine this experience that Jesus Christ, as he's coming up out of the water, the clouds are parted and the Holy Spirit begins to descend upon him like a dove. And as everybody's watching these events unfold, something miraculous happens. And a voice comes from heaven and says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am what? Well pleased. Now think about this. Because this father's response actually takes place before Jesus had ministered to just about anybody. Can you imagine this child being born into this world and the first time that you hold him, you go, I am so pleased with you. And the infant looks and says, I haven't done anything yet. Why did Jesus, or why did God say this to Jesus? Because he understood what he would accomplish in his life. By baptism is the first act of obedience. He was pleased that his son was beginning his ministry, beginning to do the thing that he had called them to do. I love the understanding of being well-pleased. Realize that this statement was before he had genuinely accomplished anything. But still to this day, every one of us have a slimmer, even if your dad is not a great father, have a desire for a father to tell us, I am pleased with who you are. I'm pleased with what you've accomplished. I'm pleased with what you have done. Reality is that that is given to us in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 21. Understand that Jesus was ministering and he was sharing a parable, the parable of the talents. And he comes to this point where the first one had hidden the talent and didn't do anything with it and they were unpleased. The second one did a a, a pretty good job, but the third one did a fantastic job. And his master said to him, the one that had accomplished much, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Realized in this moment, God was pleased with his son. Let me ask you a question. How many of you would say God is pleased with the way that you are living your life? How many of you would say it represents Christ well? And I tell you this morning, this is what we're going to key in on because the reality is most of us are okay with living just a little bit of a glimpse of who God is and then being okay with everything else. So immediately the transition of Jesus being baptized to now being in the wilderness takes place and we see this temptation set in. In Matthew chapter one and verse 12 and 13, it says the spirit immediately drove him out of the wilderness. Now imagine this miraculous moment of Jesus being baptized and put under the water and up and God appearing and the Holy Spirit appearing like a dove. And the next thing that happens is he's immediately in the wilderness. Now, Mark's literary kind of just rushes things a little bit. 
But imagine this spiritual significant event that takes place and immediately Jesus is now in the wilderness and he's being tempted. There's something that's the implication here. As believers, when you have placed your faith and trust in Christ, the first thing, immediately what's gonna take place is Satan is going to begin to attack you harder than ever for the very first time. So most of the time, we don't really talk about this as much. But if you are a new believer, maybe you've accepted Christ and you've kind of pushed back and said, I don't really need to submit in a lot of areas, that's Satan's immediate attack on you. So as they're in the wilderness, he says in verse 13, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days. No. The understanding is that he was fasting in the wilderness for 40 days and he was tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. So the reality of what he was being tempted in is very clear in the book of Matthew in chapter three and four. Mark doesn't give a lot of key into what those temptations were, but they're the exact same temptations that Satan uses on us today. The first is the physical temptation. Now, Imagine that you had been fasting for 40 days. Anybody on day 39 this morning? Imagine that at this point, Satan's first temptation was this. He says, hey, see those stones? I know you're God. And you can turn them into bread. Listen, I've been low carbon it for a while and I could turn a rock into bread right now. Anybody with me? Man, can you imagine 40 days? Look, Jesus is looking at these rocks going, man, that looks like a biscuit and cornbread and a yeast roll, buttered, But he says, sorry, any of y'all hungry right now? My bad. In this moment, Satan tells him, hey, you are God. You can turn that rock into bread. Jesus resists. The physical temptation was that he would feed himself, that he would take care of him. Satan redirects, and the next temptation comes in an emotional temptation. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 5 through 7, it's the question that does God really love you? Does God really love you as the son of God? do, Do you really trust him with his plan? Maybe you should do this on your own and in your own way. He points out a temptation to say, hey, prove it. Prove that you are him. Prove that you trust God. He tries to fast track it with this emotional temptation. And then the third temptation that Satan approaches Jesus with in Matthew chapter four and verse eight through 10 is the control temptation. Satan tempts Jesus to shortcut his mission He says, listen, I will give you all of the power. You're going to get it one day, but with me, you can grab it right now. 
You don't have to go through any of the hard stuff. You don't have to go through anything that's going to be difficult. Establish your kingdom now. Jesus pushes back and resists the temptation and chooses to please his father and do it the way that his heavenly father wants him to do it. If you understand the implications of 40 days, realize that this was a significant number for the people of Israel. Every time they mentioned the 40 days, they knew that it was a genuine test of their faith. For Israel spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, seeking the promised land that God had told them. It was a continued test of their faith. Will God continue to do this? Will I be able to get there? Moses spent 40 days and nights on Mount Sinai. Imagine this understanding that he would spend time being tested with his faith. Elijah spent 40 days on Mount Horeb. 1 Kings chapter 19 verse 8 give this understanding that he was, he was being tested about his faith. So this morning I ask you this question. Would God say that he is well pleased with your life right now? Mark mentions something that no other gospel mentions in the wild animals. I love that the, the symbol that this creates is that every time you go into the woods, something could possibly attack you. Maybe it's a snake, maybe it's a bear. And for some of you, the most critical element of the woods that scares you the most is the spider. Whatever it is, you have to be on guard, ready to go. I remember, and I love to hunt, I love to spend time in the woods. And I was hunting in a, a, a new stand. And apparently this stand was a raccoon's stand. And so as I was sitting in the deer stand, I see a raccoon come up to the tree. And now realize, I'm bow hunting. I'm not gun hunting. I didn't bring a pistol. I didn't bring a knife. If you're bow hunting, raccoon hunting is not what you want to do. So this raccoon begins to come up this live oak. And I'm going... He's going to come around here and scare the dickens out of me. What am I going to do? Do I kick him? Do I grab him, poke his eye? What do I do? Sure enough, the raccoon comes around the side and sees me. And listen, he must, he was, praise God, he was as scared of me as I was of him. And he ran off and went to the, to the next tree. I wonder if he's telling that when he's preaching a sermon this morning. Man, one day I was climbing up my tree and this human was there. Look, I was scared. The wild animals that are here represent the temptations that attack us continually as believers. Man, we are constantly to be on guard, constantly there. And I love the encouragement. Because when you think about temptation and you think about giving up and giving into temptation so many times, we feel like we're all alone in going through this. But even Jesus, who was God's son, had ministers, or, or, 
ministering angels, angels ministering to him continually. Imagine this. He was never by himself. Their function was that they were protecting and they were serving and they were continually encouraging. Jesus, you can withstand the temptation. Remember who God is. Remember his will for your life. Listen, do you realize that angels still minister to us today? So we come to this question. How do you make your father proud? So when it comes to temptation, when it comes to the things of your life, sometimes it's, it's almost this daunting task that you don't even really want to accomplish. But the first act, the first thing in making your father proud is to submit to baptism. Listen, this is an ordinance of the church. And the reality is this, this is the first step in pleasing the Lord. The first act of obedience for some, you're looking at me and going, Jeff, you, you know, are you saying that baptism is contingent with salvation? No, I'm not. Salvation is you placing your faith and trust. Baptism is a step of obedience, knowing that now you are proclaiming, I am a follower of Christ. I am a part of the church family. And the representation that you go under, that the old person, that the sins that you were a part of, the things that had control over your life are now no longer going to control you. You come out of the water, you are a new creature in Christ. Colossians tells us that old things are passed away and that we are a new creature in Christ. So I tell you, this next one is tough. Listen, I want you to understand my heart this morning when I walk into some of the things that I'm getting ready to walk into. I'm not coming at you from a position of judgment. I'm not trying to expose the areas of your life and try to embarrass you. And listen, if you feel judged in these next few minutes, that is not my intention. But I do tell you this. For some reason, Christians have stopped resisting temptation and are just continually giving into it. I'll tell you, that does not please your heavenly father. The first temptation that I want to talk to you about is the temptation of entitlement. And for some reason, most Christians believe that they are better than everybody else that's out there. And listen, I tell you, that is not our position. Listen, when we accept Christ, we should be humbled by what he's done for us. And for some reason, the farther away that we move from sin, the more judgmental we become to those that do live in sin. Reality is our place is not to judge them or to continually point out their flaws, but to lovingly tell them what Christ has done in each and every one of our lives. As mature believers, as we look back and we see what God can do, that should be hope to tell others about. Not sitting on our perch and judging and looking down upon the rest of the people that are struggling with sin. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're struggling with sin, join the club. 
but there's a lot of people that are sitting around you that have put those sin to death, but for some reason we don't talk about it anymore. We act like sin doesn't even exist. The second area, it's the same area that Jesus was tempted in, is the temptation of selfishness. The desire to take care of you more than anybody else. The reality is society tells you, love you, take care of you, you do you, you be you, 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 you. And listen, the first and greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And the second is just like it, love others. It's interesting that that passage of scripture doesn't say, hey, love you first, then love God, and then begin to love others. It says, love God and love others. Self is never mentioned. Listen, I'm not telling you to be a a, a sacrificial lamb or anything like that, but I'm telling you that the temptation to take care of us has stopped us from ministering to those that genuinely need. Third is this, full disclosure This is the one that hits me the most. To do things your way rather than God's. Look, the reality is some of you look at God and say, I'm glad that you made the earth. I'm glad that you created me, but I got this. We understand that he is in control. He is the one that leads us. He is the one that guides us. He is the one that directs us. Listen, one of the areas that this is the most commonly done in is giving. Can I speak freely for just a second? We've manipulated how we do this so that we can kind of do what we want to do with it. The reality is that God laid out a tenth. God laid out the tithing principle. If you look at the New Testament principle in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, that's actually the starting point. But yet we say, well, as long as I can give to this and I can give and round up at the grocery store and do this, listen, that's not giving. The reality is that we should give to the church which Christ died for so that this mission can continually go forward. I love the understanding. I was talking to one of my daughters and she received her first paycheck. And it was a couple hundred dollars and she said, so how much is a tenth? I said, $25. And her response was this, that's it? That's all that God asks of? (laughs) I'm sitting there going, I'm gonna let you preach a sermon, kid. Listen, God has blessed us with so much. We try to control what God has done and do it our way and manipulate it and turn it into our package of things. And God goes, I've clearly laid out the path for you. It's time for us to begin to realize that Jesus was tempted the exact same way that we are. The physical temptations that come to you to, to, to overeat or be involved with whatever sin that's out there, 
continually enticing us. But we've stopped fighting. We've stopped resisting. The emotional temptations that are continually kind of permeating in our minds saying, I can do this my way. The temptation of control, of going, God, I, I need you for salvation, but I don't need you to live for my life. So here's my ask. I ask you, if you want to please your father, please your heavenly father, commit to 40 days of fighting temptation. Listen, before you look at me like I'm crazy, how many of you have done a diet for 40 days? Nobody? I was expecting a completely different answer there. Maybe we should start there. Many of you have committed to going to the gym for 40 days. How many of you committed? Listen, we commit to subscriptions for 40 days. Hey, one month, trial run. But for some reason, we won't commit to fight against temptation. Look, some of you, sin has run rampant in your Christian life for years. Your anger has flown off the handle. Your struggle with lust, your struggle with lying, your struggle with name whatever it is because I promise you the Holy Spirit's putting it on your heart right now. And you've stopped fighting it. Look, the reality is that there's significance in those 40 days, but for you, you may need a target date. I promise you, if you begin to fight these temptations, you begin to withstand it. I love what scripture says in the book of James, resist the devil and what? He will flee from you. This is given by Jesus. In these 40 days, these three temptations, Satan was out. He was gone. One of the things that scares me is how easy Christians continue to live in sin. Look, Galatians chapter five, verse one says, there is therefore now no, no condemnation for those which are in Christ Jesus. There is freedom. Listen, you are free from this. Why are you continually bringing it back on your life? There's a problem. Let me close with this. There's a cause and effect of the results of living this way. When you continually give in to temptation, it makes you a victim. I realize this. Satan is the one that victimizes you and you become the victim in this. The reality is, when you continually give in to temptation, it makes you a victim and you begin to victimize others. An explanation from a, a counseling perspective here. When you give in to temptation, you have been a victim of Satan's attack. And for some reason, our response has kind of become different to this. We now look and say, we're all victims. We come to church on Sunday with this victim mindset. 
We look at Satan and we go, I can't believe you did that to us. I can't believe you accomplished that in my life. I can't believe that you are who you are. And as a victim, you focus on your own trauma rather than what God has done to get you through. For some, we're continually in this victim mindset that we forget that we can be victorious with this. We don't have to be victims with this. The reality is because we're continually living as victims, we're victimizing others. Do you realize that most sin affects others? For guys that are involved in an extramarital affair, involved with pornography or whatever it is, I promise you, it's having major effects on your relationship with your spouse. If you're constantly angry, if you're losing the battle of anger continually, your kids are being affected by it. Listen, if you have no self-control for anything, it's affecting the people that are around you. So I challenge you, it's time to start fighting the temptation and pleasing the Lord. Listen, there's nothing like making your heavenly father proud. I remember I've coached out at Pula Rec for what seems like a hundred years now. And I was coaching soccer and I was coaching Carolina in soccer. And I remember in that first year, just how crazy little five and six-year-olds are. And one little girl told me she didn't want to play. And I was like, your daddy paid. And she was like, well, I told him not to pay. Just trying to convince them to be on the field seemed like the most daunting task of all. But I remember when I, I was, we were about two games into the season. And I was thinking, man, Caroline still hasn't scored a goal. I'm a failure as a coach. Got to get this thing like working in the right direction. She should be dominating all these little kids by now. I remember a kid kicked the ball to the middle of the goal. And Caroline just ran through at the perfect time and barely tapped it into the goal. And I remember being so proud that I found myself running out onto the soccer field in the middle of the game and lifting her up like the Lion King. I'm pretty sure I heard the music. I remember being excited because she scored a goal. Can I tell you? That same expression happens for the Lord when we begin to fight temptation and live for Christ. So I come back to this question that we began with. Are you living in a way that's pleasing your heavenly father? Look, for some, that earthly father is not the one that you're desiring to please, and I get that. But I can promise you there's a heavenly father that loves you, a heavenly father that cares about you, a heavenly father that wants what's best for you. 
for some reason, we've become more convinced that pleasing ourselves is more important than pleasing our Heavenly Father. If everybody would bow their heads and close their eyes just for a second. I know that when we talk about temptation, immediately, we don't want anybody to know what we're struggling with. We try to kind of cover, we try to look at somebody else and say, well, at least I'm not struggling like they are. Reality is, all of us here are struggling with something. Whether it's one sin or many. But if you feel defeated this morning, I want you to know you can be victorious over this. Jesus laid out the model for us. He was tempted in the same areas. Listen, Satan's attack has not changed. He's going to attack you in the physical. He's going to attack you in the emotional. And he's going to attack you in the self-control. Every time, that's going to be where his attack comes from. But just how Jesus overcame it, because minister, or angels ministered to him and cared for him and helped him, that exact same thing can begin to take place in your life. Listen, you got to commit to begin to fight this. My hope is if you're a planner like me and you put 40 days on your uh, eye calendar or whatever calendar you use, that you would look back and say, I've withstood it because of Christ. I've overcome this in my life. I'm no longer giving in to this sin because of Christ. Look, God has called you not to be defeated and not to be a victim, but to be victorious over sin. Stop letting it run your life. It's ruling you ineffective. You're carrying around this weight of not pleasing your heavenly father when resisting temptation, submitting to him and living for him are what he desires. So my prayer as we sing this next song or when we begin to sing this next song is that whatever temptation you're struggling with this morning, that you would lay it on this altar and you'd be done with it. That you'd begin to fight Dear Father, I come to you humbled and thankful for the way that you love us. Thankful for Mark's straightforward account that says, as soon as Jesus Christ rose from his baptism, immediately Satan's attack began to set in. For some reason, we forget that we fight an enemy. Lord, I'm so thankful that Jesus was able to withstand Satan's greatest attacks so that we would know how to be able to do that also. Father, I pray for those that have the weight of sin just all over them this morning. 
Father, that are victims of Satan's continual attack. Lord, may you release them from that and begin to give them the victory over their sins. Or that they would set a plan of attack of reading your word and spending time in prayer, prayer and preparing for these attacks. Lord, at the end of 40 days, it's not perfection that we're looking for, but that continual fight of saying, I began to put it to death in my life. Father, may we be victorious instead of continually being victims. Father, I love you and I praise you this morning. In Christ's precious and holy name we pray, amen. If you would stand with us. The worship team is going to sing a song. And the first sentence of it speaks exactly to what this message is talked about. Realize as the words unfold to this song, you don't have to continue to live there. So as this song is saying, this altar is open to you, whether sin is running rampant through you. Listen, this is not a church of judgment. Nobody's going to look at you when you come to the altar and say, I wonder what they're dealing with. This church is going to look and say, how can I love them and how can I help them through this? I challenge you this morning, commit to 40 days of just fighting the temptation that's continually winning in your life. Will you commit with me this morning?